Can they hear us now? Good. <laughs> the headphones is on fire, man. Come on, nation. What up? What up? What up, everyone? Welcome to episode 194. You heard that right. Episode 194 of Combo's Court. And I am Combo. Go rate, review, and punch down on that subscribe button right on your Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to Combo's Court. Also, man, tell a friend to tell a friend about the show. We here at Combo's Court would greatly appreciate it. Today's show, Nakias Duncan, formerly of Bleacher Report, now with BasketballNews.com, joins in a great conversation with Nakias. We discuss the Steve Nash hiring, Microball, Jamal Murray's leap, and much, much more. You can find Nakias on Twitter at NakiasNBA. That's N-E-K-I-A-S-N-B-A. You could actually find me on Twitter at Combos Court. That's C-O-M-B-O-S. C-O-U-R-T. And you know you can find me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Nakias Duncan of BasketballNews.com. Welcome to Combos Court, man. How are you feeling tonight? I am doing all right, man. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, man. It's been a crazy couple of days. Um, I actually read your article. You know, you posted that on August 18th, and um, it was how Eric Spolstra transformed the Heat's offense. Can you just get into uh, Coach Spolstra's relationship with Jim Crutchfield and who exactly Jim Crutchfield is? Uh, yes. So Jim Crutchfield is a legendary Division II coach. Um, he's currently at Nova Southeastern. The big thing with Crutchfield was that he just one of the best offensive minds in college basketball, period. Um, they've been amongst the top of the nation in offensive rating basically the entire time he's been coaching in Division II. They play a, pretty, play a very fast pace, kind of get into a, a lot of early offensive stuff, right. a lot of early pick and roll, a lot of early elbow entry type deals. They, they want to get shots quick. They want to create those creases early and then attack just kind of off of that. So um, the Heat were not a good offense last year. And right. Crutchfield was one of the people that Spo um, reached out to just to kind of pick his brain about the offensive end. Because, again, Miami was – I think they were a top 10 defense last year, but the offense was in the 20s. So this was – obviously this is before they acquired Jimmy Butler. But it was already a, a focus that Spo wanted to have. Like, if, if we're going to take this next step as a team, like, I have to figure out some things about the offense because the offense has been kind of stagnant for the last couple of seasons. Right. So that's that's kind of where it began. And then, of course, you get Jimmy Butler. They get Tyler Hero in the draft. Um, they get strong summer league showings from Kendrick Nunn. Nobody really knew who he was. Um, Duncan Robinson came back in the summer stronger than he was last year. Um, gave him some more on-ball reps, kind of helped him there. That's in addition to him already being a good shooter. Right. So once they started piecing those things together, uh, you know, Hassan Whiteside goes to Portland um, in that trade as they get Jimmy Butler in there. So that means more reps for Bam Adebayo. And they basically decide to run the offense through Bam Adebayo at the elbow, which is kind of a – it was a change from last year. Um, so they run obviously run a bunch of dribble handoff stuff with Bam Adebayo now. Him and Duncan Robinson 
had one of the most devastating two-man game in, in basketball. Robinson with the ability to kind of fling and hit contested threes off of those handoffs. If they play those handoffs high, then you have Bam kind of faking the handoff or Duncan Robinson can slip in the early pocket pass and then you get Bam rolling. Then you're looking at a four-on-three on offense. So it just set up so much of their half-court offense. And then they already – I mean, everyone on the floor is unselfish. So once you get Bam rolling, he can make a pass. And then once that pass is made, another one's gone. And then they're turning good shots into great shots and great shots into wide, wide, wide-open shots. And the offense just kind of boomed from there. Right, right. How did Spo get Jimmy uh, to buy in so seamlessly? Um, I think it's putting the ball in Jimmy Butler's hands and kind of empowering him as a playmaker. Um, that's actually one of the things that Jimmy Butler mentioned early in the year that helped him kind of trust Spo is that he was impressed by the fact that Spo recognized that Jimmy is a really, really good passer. Um, he's, he's always been able to pass. He, he's obviously been more of a score-first guy in Chicago once their roles kind of started getting hurt and he got a bigger role in Chicago. Um, in Minnesota, he was kind of the closer, even though, you know, you had um, Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins being able to give you 20 to 25 points whenever. Um, Philadelphia, they gave him the reins late in playoff games. But uh, Miami was the first stop that they basically let Jimmy Butler play point guard or point forward. Right. So empowering him that way um, gave him a level of comfort that he hadn't had elsewhere. Yeah. And that combined with everyone else kind of be, kind of hunting for the best shot and not really looking for their own. Like, every, everyone's pretty unselfish there. It was just easy for everyone to jail from that point. Right, and I think that's just where the NBA has gone. Like, just put the ball in your best player's hand, whether it's Giannis or Luka or LeBron or, you know, Jokic. It don't really matter what position you are. You just give them the basketball and good things will happen. Right. Big news today. Uh, what was your initial thoughts on the Steve Nash hiring? Um, my first thought was that it's interesting. Um, Steve Nash is obviously one of the best point guards that we've ever seen. Right. Fantastic court vision, self plays three or four frames ahead. Um, one of the best shooters ever, just a hall of fame talent. Um, a great leader. Right. And then you think about the connections that he, uh, that he had to build when he was in Golden State kind of as a consultant there, Like he's, he's very well known, very well loved across the league. So it made sense that a guy like Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving, it makes sense that they would want him. So that was kind of my initial thought, like, hmm, this is pretty interesting. Yeah. But then after that, it, I just kind of zoomed out. And Quick just, question. Did you hear any rumblings of this anywhere or anything like this? No, I didn't. That, okay. that was really, yeah. It, it was that being interesting and also just the initial shock because what, what I heard or what I was reading was they're going to try to make the Hail Mary offer for Greg Popovich. Yeah. And then from there, maybe it's Tyron Lue since he I, already had some time. With I never believed the Popovich thing, me personally. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't think it was going to happen either. But, I mean, I yeah, figured yeah. they were at least going to try. Like, you always right, right. lost that option. So, I'm just like, okay, maybe it's Tyron Lue since he has that um, experience with Kyrie Irving. Maybe it's Jacques Vaughn who did a good job. Um, I, just, I didn't see Steve Nash, period. Right. So, that just kind of came out of left field. But once I got past the initial shock of it, then I just kind of zoomed out. And I'm just like, well, it's kind of interesting that Steve Nash, with zero head coaching um, experience, walks into a fantastic situation with two, with two stars, at least. Two superstars, if you want to call Kyrie Irving a superstar. I wouldn't, but, you know. I think he is. He's, part, you know, he's, he's definitely well, the top. Well, well talent-wise, he is. He's, you know, he's on the cusp. You know, I'm not going to quibble about okay. it. Okay. So, you know, Wait, so, let me ask you a question. How many players would you give that superstar title to? 
Superstar tight. I would. I actually just did this exercise the other day. I think I would settle at ten. And Kyrie's not there. Wow. Okay. I I don't think no. I don't think Kyrie's in. Okay. I think Kyrie's in that next tier. Okay. Kind of in that uh, kind of within like that eleven to fifteen range. Gotcha. Uh, I think he's very good, but I think there's just a there's a cutoff there that he just misses out on. Okay. So I yeah I zoom out and it's like well Steve Nash has zero head coaching experience zero coaching experience, and he walks into a a situation with two superstars where again Jacques Vaughn was already there and apparently left a strong impression on Nets ownership because of the job he did this year with all the injuries all the roster turnover. It's kind of he kind of got skipped over again no Tyron Lue right so and then there are so many so many season coaching veterans, so many seasoned assistants that didn't get an opportunity to interview, I wouldn't think, much less get the job. So it's not about Steve Nash individually, because again, he has credentials, even without the coaching experience, that not many people can match. Again, two-time MVP, Hall of Fame talent, one of the smartest players in the league that the league has ever seen, um, one of the best leaders that the league has ever seen. So there's, there's merit to that. And I think he will be able to connect with Kyrie and Kevin Durant in a way that maybe a traditional coach couldn't. And I think with a situation as delicate as Brooklyn's, that makes sense for them. But it's also kind of the principle of, for, I mean, just not to pull punches, it's a, it's a white man walking into a situation that a black man probably wouldn't get, or at least wouldn't get as often. So right. that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And it was kind of, it was, it's a little difficult to parse through kind of expressing that without making it about Steve Nash himself. It's more so about, it's more so the principle of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely that element to it. And I'm with you on that. Um, just how much of it do you think was that's Kevin Durant's guy? And, you know, this is what we're going to go with. I think in this case, that's 100% what it is. Okay. Okay. All right. So last night, a couple crazy games. Um, my first, my initial thoughts when Rockets won were probably differently than others. I'm just like, micro ball lives on. Like, that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like the Kais, I'm not a fan of a team. Like, I try and stay unbiased with my podcast, but I'm a fan of ideas and trends and trying new things. So I'm an advocate of micro ball, man. Uh, what the, <laughs> do you think micro ball will live on, like, in the long term? Or is just anything short of a championship, you think it's pretty much over for that? Uh, I think if they don't make a legitimate run, and again, they're going against the Lakers, which is going to be a tough matchup for them. Yeah. I think you're going to see at least a little bit of a shift. I feel like... It is a copycat league, right? Yeah, it's it's a copycat league. They're just so drastically different from everyone. And the ideals make sense. Right. You want like-sized guys. I think especially in a playoff setting, defensively, you want like-sized guys that can switch actions and kind of flatten out offenses. You can't run your fancy off-ball stuff if you can't create those creases because the screens are getting switched. Right. So, like, from so fundamentally, I am with Houston. I think the thing is, I don't think you can do that with like a bunch of six-three to six-six guys, which is where Houston is right now. Yeah. I think the frontier is going to be like ideally, you get five Bam out of bios. You want you want five six you want five six nine six ten guys. That can all pass well enough, shoot. That well would be ridiculous. Well like that, I think that's, <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Well, Denver did something like that, right? Um, yeah, like Denver went yeah. to the other extreme during yeah. the seeding games, where you got Bobo at small forward, basically. 
So I think the I think the evolution of basketball within the next five, ten years of what teams are going to aim for at least, you're going to want like six, eight, six, nine, six, ten guys that can kind of be interchangeable, not six, four, six, five. Because I think what Houston might run into in his next round is that you know I think overall in the league teams have kind of um, have kind of punted on crashing the offensive glass. They want to get back in transition, set the defense, kind of make teams work for it in the half court. But I think once you get into matchup specific stuff in the playoffs those offensive rebounds can swing things. Yeah. And I think yeah. as well as the job P.J. Tucker has done on Anthony Davis on post-ups and just in general. Yeah, he's just going to shoot right day, over, though. He's yeah, just, like at the end of the day, like Anthony Davis is still 6'10 with a 7-whatever wingspan. And if they're starting Brow and JaVale McGee together, JaVale McGee is still 7 foot with like a 7'8", seven, 7'9 seven, wingspan. And I would imagine they're probably going to stash JaVale on Russell Westbrook and kind of dare him to shoot jumpers. So it's not like they're going to get super burned there. At least ideally, that's what they're going to look for. So I think Houston, I, the idea of Houston makes sense to me. Yeah. I just don't think they're quite big enough. And I think that's that's kind of where I think it might die out if they flame out in the second round. Yeah, I had a little bit of this conversation on another podcast that I was on, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts. At the end of the game, in theory, it makes sense to have Westbrook with the ball because there'll be more spacing with James as a spot-up shooter, but how would you go with it in that, like, end-of-game situation? Who do you like to see with the basketball in their hands? I think I would lean towards you. I want Russell Westbrook starting the play. Right. Because I think what happens when you have James Harden as the play starter, teams are already going to try to try to shrink the floor a little bit off of Russell Westbrook because they know, like, Harden Harden is obviously skilled enough to make, like, a skip to Russell Westbrook on the wing or the corner wherever he's standing. But you don't want Russell shooting catch-and-shoot threes if you're Houston. You don't want him shooting threes, period. Yeah, right. And then if you have, like, one of those record scratches, record scratch-type situations where he catches it, kind of hesitates and lets the defense rotate back to him and kind of load up for his drive, then the offense is halted. And Houston already doesn't have great flow in their offense. Like, it's a very isocentric offense. It's effective. But they already don't have a bunch of off-ball movement. The way they scramble defense is because James Harden is so good, and once he beats his defender, you kind of have to help or it's going to be a bucket of free throws. Right. So they don't get they don't get that natural flow off ball. So I think if you kick it out to Russell Westbrook there against a defense that can kind of get back set, then it gets really ugly for them. So I think you start with Russell Westbrook because he can break down a defense without a screen. And once you have to collapse on him, then he's kicking out to the four shooters that they have out on the floor, and it just produces better offensive looks. Right. Uh, Yesterday, another interesting thing was that I would hear people say Dort outplayed James Harden, which is true. But like, come on, man, like the gravity. uh, I mean, James Harden seeing traps, Dort is shooting wide open threes. Like, I don't know. He did outplay him, but they're like totally different situations, you know? Yeah, I feel like there was a large element of jokes over facts, at least. Okay, okay, okay. And like, I mean, like, I get that. Yeah. Like, obviously, you're examining it like Lou Dor- Like, they're just not guarding Lou Dort. Exactly. Like, so, he outplayed him, but yeah, but they're, like, totally different situations. But yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to shift to Denver. Um, I think something understated, and what I haven't heard anybody talk about was, you know, Jokic, he controlled – he really controlled pace at the end of that game, and I think that was the difference. Like, he's somebody that could slow things down when everything was wild, and I really think that was the difference in that game seven. Did you see the same thing? It did. Uh, what was the stat? He scored or assisted on 21 of Denver's last 30 points. Right. Somewhere right. in there. Like, this is why, like, 
on a, from a general standpoint, I don't think you can really build around a center and be a serious NBA contender. Where Jokic can be an exception is because he poses a he poses a threat from all three levels on top of being able to make his teammates better because of his passing. Like he's right. the best aggregate man ever. So I think you saw elements of that in that game seven to where you they're running pick and pops with him and Jamal Murray. Um, Rudy Gobert's kind of been in the bind all series long because he's used to dropping. Like he's an incredible rim protector. He wants to drop. He can kind of shut off those driving lanes, can contest shots at the rim of his wild wingspan. But once you – the thing about drop defense is that if you have a stretch big against it, you're basically gifting them open looks. Right. And early on in the series, Jokic hit enough three-point shots or at least took enough of them to where Rudy Gobert had to take that extra inch. And that's on top of Jamal Murray kind of pulling off of those dribble handoffs if they run them high or off of those pick and rolls to where he can pull up. And he was crazy after game one. So then once you get Rudy Gobert stepping out, then Jokic, that opens up the pump-and-go game for him. And he had some awkward drives, but he was able to get to the free throw line. He was able to find cutters. Yeah. He was able to kind of pump, fake, reset, toss in those – off the wrong leg, off the wrong foot, fadeaways. Just a really funky guy on all three levels. And the yeah. way he bent that defense, especially in that game seven, 30, 14, and four, like Utah just didn't have a really good answer for him. They they tried to stash Rudy Gobert on, I think, yeah, it was Corey I, Craig. Yeah. They tried to get him out of those high screen actions. And like it, there was just no real comfortable answer for Jokic. And that's the way that he could bend the defense. Yeah, there's guys that I think you look at their stats and you're like, those are the stats. But I think with like a guy like Jokic, like the stats didn't tell the whole story with the mm-hmm. way he controlled pace at the end of that game. You know, well, how much of Murray's leap is just his willingness to shoot more threes? I think that's a big part of it. Especially early in his career, he loved to go into those pull up long twos. Right. And I think you know pull up jumpers at the elbow are fine or a little bit shorter. Right, right. Once you're getting into those pull-up 19-footers, pull-up 20-footers, 21-footers, like just turn those into threes. So I think the shot distribution was big for him. Shot selection in general was a big thing for him. I think he's starting to read the floor a little bit better. Um, Obviously, the stats tell the story that this was the best series that he's ever had. But just from a field perspective, just from a pacing perspective, I think this is the best stretch of basketball we've seen from him. Definitely. Because, again, Utah started out in their usual drop. Um, they tried to mix in some switches. Um, Rudy Gobert eventually started showing high on screens, and then you saw Jamal Murray kind of splitting those or kind of dribbling out of that hard hedge and then making passes. So he just started downloading things in a way that we hadn't seen from him, and I think that's going to be huge for him moving forward. Yeah, yeah, he played great, and I'm not even talking about him when I get to this next thing I want to talk about, which is probably be the last thing. Uh, I mean, these bubble numbers – it's not really a telling story for like how a player like this is going to be the peak for some players. I think when it comes Mm -hmm. to stats, not their game, but stats. And I think that's something that people really aren't taking into consideration. Yeah. It's just such a different environment. Again, they're playing playing against no fans. Like it's a, it's a neutral site. And then on site, you know, that was early talk when they first got to the bubble, like the depth perception on shots is different just because of the, the background behind the rim so that's helped shooters um with no travel you could argue that there's there's more rest don't have to worry about you know flying cross country or whatever so i think in terms of yeah statistically i don't think we're going to see that replicated um i do think like some of the reads that the younger players are seeing your jamal murray your donovan mitchell's if you want to go deeper down the the food chain like your tyler heroes who's had himself a 
fantastic rookie playoff debut. Like, the reads aren't going to change, so I think that's going to be real tangible growth. But in terms of the numbers, yeah, I, I think we're, we're going to see a little bit of regression next year. Yeah, and just, like, comparing, like, let's say somebody's rookie bubble numbers to somebody who played two years ago playoff numbers. Like, you know, it's not really fair, you know? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a little bit of a boost. Nikai, it's great stuff. You're always welcome back on the show. Please let the listeners know where they can find you on social media and everywhere else. All right. You can find me on Twitter at NikaiasNBA, N-E-K-I-A-S-N-B-A. Um, you can read all of my work at basketballnews.com. Very straightforward. Um, I've already had, had a Luca piece drop um, earlier in the playoffs. Have two heat pieces drop over the last week or so. I'm going to have some WNBA words dropping soon. Um, I was going to be watching the playoffs to see what other trends stand out for me. So just be on the lookout for that. I will. We will. Uh, great stuff, Nikias. You're always welcome back on the show and talk soon. All right. Thank you. Anytime. There it is. There it was. Thank you for listening to Combo's Court. Big shouts to Nikias for joining in. We appreciate you. Combo Nation, let me know what city, state, country you listen to Combo's Court from right in the comments section of your Apple podcast app or wherever you listen to Combo's Court. We here at Combo's Court would greatly appreciate it. Tell a friend to tell a friend about the show. Also, man, take a screenshot of this episode. Post it on your IG stories. Tag me at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O so I can share it. Be on the lookout for episode 195-Combo. Out.